Well, we're in the book of Acts for the last time in this series. And I seem to misplace. Oh, here it is. My Bible. This second time we've been in the book of Acts, I've called thematically the Gentile inclusion because I like to confuse people with big words. Uh, Gentile meaning non-Jew, everybody who's not Jewish. But that's been the overarching uh, theme as we started this time in Acts. We started back in Acts 9 with the conversion of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And we're ending today on with the church council on how to, to handle this incoming, this inclusion of non-Jews to receiving the gospel. Uh, when in historically times past, uh, just for the Israelites, the Hebrew God, that's, it was foreign to think about, especially for Jews, that their God would save and redeem and restore human beings both in and outside their race. Yet that is the good news of Jesus in a sentence that God so loved the world, not just Israel, but the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever, not just Israelite, but whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That is the gospel. And so what this debate in Acts 15 centers on is the gospel. But like all good movies, our latest movie, part two of our series in Acts, ends on an invitation and a cliffhanger to let us know that more action will continue. (laughs) But it will continue perhaps in a way we don't expect because Paul and Barnabas are about to go back out into the mission field they just established in the region of Galatia, current day Turkey. We've been looking at maps for the last several weeks. And Paul and Barnabas are perhaps wondering, how are those churches faring? But before they go, Barnabas wants to take John Mark. And if you remember, John Mark actually began on their first mission trip, but for reasons unexplained to us, he returned home. Though they are unexplained, Luke seems to write here in this chapter about this conflict between Paul and Barnabas that the reasons that Mark left, left a sour taste and Paul's mouth. No, we're not even going to try to take John Mark with us (laughs) this time. So what we will see in these verses is how one conflict, a very big conflict, perhaps the biggest the early church faced, is resolved. And then how a smaller conflict of people leads to a little bit of a division in the church. Jim read for us the entire text and he Started a little bit before we enter into the text we're studying. But we're diving right into the middle of James, the brother of Jesus, talking. He's kind of the the authoritative figure in Jerusalem. Maybe uh, the Jerusalem church lead pastor, to use our terminology. And by virtue of being the leader of the Jerusalem church, he may be a leader among equals in the church that day, period. But having given his approval to Peter's comments and his own input from the Bible, he's about to render his verdict on the question of accepting Gentiles or non-Jews into the church. So I invite you to stand and read with me as we begin our study. We're just going to read the first three verses to begin with, beginning with verse 19. James says here, 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. Father, you work in unique ways, ways we don't expect. And that we sometimes come to your word and it's easy to get bogged down by ancient cultures we don't understand. Terminology sometimes that is confusing to us at first until we think about it and mull it over. We live in a soundbite generation to where we just want fast food. We want quick snippets of practical living and leave out all the rest. But what you gave us is your word and it has all these things in it because you knew your word was sufficient to disciple us. But as Phil brought up a while ago, it it cannot disciple without the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be working in us today, that you would give us open hearts and ears to hear your word, and that you would surprise us today with the things you call us to do today. Most of all, we pray for willing hearts, because it's one thing for you to speak to us, but it's quite another to take you at your word and respond the way you would have us to. We need your spirit. We need your grace to do that. Help us to obey you. Help us to seek after you. Father, we love you. We pray against the enemy that he would have no effect here. We pray that it would be your voice heard and not mine. We ask this all in our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned it here before, but whenever we study the Bible, since theologians have nothing else to do but invent words, we uh, come up with words like prescriptive and descriptive text in the Bible. The former talks about text that is prescriptive for Christians of all times. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9, that's pretty prescriptive. That's a prescription for all time. That's something that we still press upon people because we want them to be saved by God because that's how that happens. So any text throughout Scripture that has immediate implications for us, we might call prescriptive. Then there are descriptive elements of Scripture. Acts 9-11, Saul is a man of Tarsus. Acts 21-39, Paul says he is a Jew from Tarsus. This has no immediate demand or response on us. Rather, it's a descriptive fact of Paul. He was from Tarsus. There are many descriptive passages in the scriptures that have no immediate implications for us. They're just there to describe the stories and what we're reading about. But these two categories aren't always mutually exclusive. While some descriptive elements may not be immediately of demanding of us to respond to, we sometimes read stories of faith like like Abraham. And we receive secondary or implicit commands. In other words, we should have a faith like Abraham that sometimes responds with risk or obedience without understanding everything. 
While never in the story of Abraham did Moses, the author of Genesis, state, and you, readers, should respond like Abraham did. (laughs) Nevertheless, the whole counsel of God, especially books like Romans or Galatians or Hebrews, seems to imply to us that mimicking Abraham's faith is a noble aspiration. So, the description of Abraham's faith in life becomes... I should say the description of Abraham's faith in life becomes a prescription for a believer's faith in life. Does that make sense? I bring this up to say, generally speaking, that I used to think most of Acts chapter 15, particularly the Jewish council, was a prescriptive passage. Why? Because it makes sense in simple terms. The church was meeting primarily about what to do about Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. They rendered a verdict. Gentiles were included because of this verdict. So it must be prescriptive since there are still Gentiles around. But then I started reading it. And in these first three verses, after having first shown agreement with Peter, and after having reached back into the Old Testament, we talked about this last week, to verify his forthcoming judgment. Now James renders his prescription, his verdict, He says again in verses 19 through 21, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So his judgment, James's judgment, after taking into consideration all that's been said and, and uncovered with the Scriptures, is that Gentiles were long before anticipated to be part of God's people, so they need not to be troubled if they're accepting the Messiah to come to God. But then James seems to pull out of, out of thin air these rules <laughs> or these advisements that they need to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. <laughs> but it's not actually not out of thin air. In fact, James is thinking about the Bible still. And because in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18, it has all these ideas, these rules, these concepts together in those two chapters. But then near the end of these concepts, God says, but... You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So, in Old Testament Israel, if Gentiles or if non-natives came to live among the Israelites, so we're thinking about people like Ruth, then God says they must keep these statutes too. In Leviticus 17 and 18. These policies are laid out, ones just like James laid out. And so he's rooting the advice to give to the Gentiles still in a biblical foundation that seems related to the subject of what to do in this context of Jews and Gentiles being God's people together. But as we think about context, we talked about prescriptive and descriptive passages You would think that an early council ruling like this would hold weight now, would be prescriptive. In other words, particularly because we have a church universal that is still made of converted Jews and Gentiles. 
But what's interesting is in places like 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11, Paul's going to say things a little bit differently. He's going to say things a bit lighter. He says things like, hey, you can eat meat that was sacrificed to idols and a good conscience. Go ahead. That's what he says. Okay, maybe not those exact words. But a good example of that would be in verses 25, 26, and 27 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And he would go on to say that if the unbeliever does say that the meat was sacrificed to one of their gods, then don't eat it for the sake of their conscience. In other words, if it's voiced, don't come across to them supportive of their cause. Well, what do we do with this? It seems James's verdict in what would come later officially in the letter sent to the Gentiles says no meat polluted by idols where Paul seems to give leniency. He seems to say, hey, if a non-believer prepares a dish, puts it in front of you, no words really spoken, go ahead. But if he gives it to you and then praises his gods for it, don't eat it. Now, here's what some say. Well, the council says for Gentiles not to eat the meat knowingly, and Paul doesn't either. Paul seems to say that as soon as it's known that the meat was sacrificed for other gods, that's when Paul puts the gabosh on it. Don't eat that meat. And I don't know. I think Paul, in the context of his passage, is more concerned with the conscience of other people. Because he says in his context... In fact, two verses preceded to the ones we just looked at. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Paul is concerned about witness. Paul is concerned about the others not getting the wrong impression. And I think it comes down to this descriptive elements in the passage. We are reading the description of the letters and injunctions that James gave at this time. In fact, the things he addresses are common elements of pagan worship. Meat sacrificed to gods, sexual immorality, shrine prostitutes, other sexual immoralities circulating in the worship of foreign gods. In other words, I think this letter could be as simple and obvious as James saying, for the Gentile believers... Don't let them worship their gods in the way they worshiped before. Let them come to Yahweh and worship Yahweh the way he wants to be worshipped. Well, how so? And maybe this is why James ends his verdict this way in verse 21. He says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now this verse... uh, seems to be a bit non-sequitur. I mean, think about it. It sounds like James is saying, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat meat prepared like the pagans do with worshiping. Don't commit sexual sins. By the way, the law is read in synagogues everywhere. Like, okay, those are not related, it seems. A few ways to handle this. Like I said, it could be, it could be James is reminding his Gentile converts that unlike the sinful ways, pagan gods are worshipped, the right way is read in the law. So maybe this is an invitation to synagogues for the pagan Gentiles. Keep in mind in this day, not everybody read. So maybe James is saying, hey, at least familiarize the history or the Jewish history of our Lord. Go to the synagogues. Secondly, this could also be an alleviation to Jewish Christians. James could be saying, 
the reading of the Torah will not be done away with with the arrival of Gentiles who are saved. It's read every generation. It is still in synagogue. So reassure yourselves that Gentiles are not stealing anything from the Jews in the church by their being saved. A third possibility is that James is bringing up the reading of Torah by means of saying, all the judgments I've just given find their basis in the Torah, read to you every Sabbath. Show up at a synagogue here for yourself if the judgments of our church is ruling is biblical or not. James has quoted Amos and Isaiah. We discussed that last week. He's pulled from Leviticus today. But one other thing before I continue. By me calling all of this descriptive, that James is making judgments in light of freshly converted Gentiles who may still be worshiping gods in the way of polluted meats and sexual sins, I want to make clear that Paul seems to take a different route on the, the meat thing. However, Paul in the rest of the New Testament does not take a different route on sexual immorality. <laughs> Jesus speaks of lust and its sinfulness in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul speaks about the sins of homosexuality and bestiality. The author of Hebrews says that the sin of fornication or sex outside of marriage. My point is, is my view of James in this letter is this. James and the church are concerned primarily with telling the Gentiles that accepting Yahweh for salvation means not worshiping other gods, but worshiping Yahweh. We continue... It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men of the brothers. So here's what's happening. Barnabas, probably upwards of four to five years at this point, if not more, had been at Antioch church and some point in time, after Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he went and he got Paul from Tarsus. Paul and Barnabas are probably pastors emeriti, pastors forever at Antioch Church. And what the apostles and elders in Jerusalem are doing is this. Let's grab some more men from Jerusalem and send them back with Paul and Barnabas when they give this letter. Because it shows unity. It's showing we are invested in Antioch Church. Some of you may remember a few years ago when our denomination was having some struggles and at some point in time we were visited by three or four um, leaders in our denomination for a conversation. They came from South Idaho and from Oregon and it was a way of them saying, we care about what's happening here. <laughs> we care about what you think about us and we value our connection. And so I believe these Jerusalem, this Jerusalem church selected two believers. One... Judas called Barsabbas, and I prefer why he, or I understand why he probably preferred to go by the latter name now, Barsabbas. But then also Silas, and Silas is actually a shortened form of the name uh, Silvanus. And it is a name that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and also in the books of Thessalonians and also in Peter's epistles. And they're all likely referring to this guy Silas. And Silas would actually join Paul in his second missionary travels after Paul and Barnabas have a falling out. <clears throat> and we'll discuss here later. These two men from Jerusalem, they joined the Antioch pastors, Paul and Barnabas, with the following letter, the, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers 
who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia is the region where Tarsus is. That's Paul's hometown. Greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions or other translations, would here say we did not commission them. In other words, the folks who have originally came up to Antioch from Judea, the region where Jerusalem was, Judea, those who went up to Antioch were not acting on behalf of the Jerusalem church in official capacity. Because I know church culture, here's how I envision it, word of Gentile salvation came to the Jerusalem area and some pinheads in the congregation. Pinheads is implied in the Greek. Okay, maybe not. But they're... Oh, it's there. Okay. But they're thinking, Gentiles, why did the leaders let this happen? If Gentiles are coming in, they better at least be law abiding. (laughs) And in this letter here, Jerusalem church is in official capacity. They are distancing themselves from the Judaizers saying we did not commission them. We didn't send them. They're not acting and speaking in our capacity. But then, in fact, this word unsettling Your minds, verse 24, the King James would say that these Judaizers have troubled you, the Gentile believers, with words subverting your souls. Now, this is a strong word, and it's actually a word that's not used anywhere else in the Bible, including the Old Testament Greek translation. Its its meaning was more literally an entire removal of goods. So this is kind of strong language. Paul actually uses strong language in his book of Galatians when he's writing a bunch of Galatians being crammed with this fake gospel of that Jesus isn't enough. There needs to be some law keeping and some circumcision. Paul says in Galatians, he says, I'm astonished that you're deserting Christ. That's kind of a big charge. Paul says, if anyone, even an angel, (laughs) preaches to you a different gospel than the one we preach to you, that is free grace. Let him be accursed. And so the point of this letter, subverting your souls, is supposed to show the danger that Gentile Christians are in if they feel at all compelled to keep the law. Because for them, if they don't keep the law, they fear losing salvation. Christ has paid their salvation. The letter continues, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are commending Antioch's church's leaders. They're commending the missionaries that first came to the churches who will also receive this letter saying we're on their side (laughs) and they're on our side. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Verse 28, for it has seemed good to uh, the Holy Spirit and to us. We see the interplay here of, of human reasoning and God's guidance. This is so reflective of life and the many decisions that we make. I'm like many people here, I'm sure. I wish there was a page, a chapter, a verse for every question, every problem in life. But there isn't. 
And what James did and what the church in Jerusalem did is they heard the testimony. They heard the experiences of people like Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And then they coupled it with scriptures so that experience and scriptures guided by the Holy Spirit led them to some sound reasoning. To do this for the Gentile Christians, they say, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burdens than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Think about this. In that day and age, Gentiles probably did not have the Old Testament at all. Not of them didn't read it. A lot of the Gentiles who came to Christ, especially in the regions where Paul went to, came fresh out of pagan gods they worshipped. Absent from these requirements that the church lays on the Gentiles is circumcision or requirements to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. In fact, this may blow your mind, but absent from these requirements are large ideas in the Old Testament that many of us might wonder about. Were Gentile Christians supposed to keep the Ten Commandments? Do, do Gentiles have to do that? <laughs> what about the lots and lots of Old Testament that many Christians I know to this day will open up to some random law in Leviticus, don't pierce your skin. See, the law says don't do this, so don't do this. Christian thinkers and teachers have a, a few ways of describing how we know what laws, if you want to call them that, in the New Covenant that we still keep. So, for example, if something in the New Testament seems to reaffirm a law in the Old Testament, well, then we know that's a law, that's a sin. Others like to partition the Old Testament law into three categories. And since you're going to be quizzed for this on Tuesday, I'll tell you. <laughs> Others like to partition the Old Testament law into ceremonial laws, judicial laws, and moral laws. Ceremonial laws would be the laws concerning ceremonies in the Old Testament, but we don't have a temple, so those laws really don't apply to us. We can't go and sprinkle the blood that way and cut the animal this way. Other laws, called judicial laws, would be laws on ancient Israel. Now, I know there was a nation named Israel founded in 48, 1948, but it's not the exact same nation that God set up in the Old Testament. Um, there's no year of Jubilee in Israel, for example, happening every seven years, as laws in the Old Testament still do. Then the last category is moral laws. For moral laws, it seems like in places like Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was concerned with the pursuit of moral perfection for those who pursue Christ. So likely, if a moral law such as Murder, stealing, adultery has prohibitions in the Old Testament. It's more than likely we should abide by those moral laws. So that's one way to partition out. But I should tell you right now that that's an imposed understanding. Because if you look in the New Testament, you never see Paul, James, Peter, Jesus saying, and whenever you refer to the Old Testament, understand the laws in these three categories. So because we don't have a primary directive to look at it that way, that's also, also something to consider. Others like to word it this way. We see expectation of morality before the law in the Old Testament. There was a reason that God told Cain that it was a sin to even think about murdering Abel. The, the law was not given until Exodus chapter 20. 
God wiped out the world in a flood for the evil he saw. We also see sacrifices happening before the law. These were all expected and they taken place prior to the book of Exodus, book of Leviticus. And so the point is, is if we see moral aspects of the law expected before the law, they seem to correlate with the expectations of Jesus or Paul in his epistles. These are likely areas where sins and offenses occur should we be guilty of them. Do you understand the conundrum I'm bringing up? That all these Gentiles don't even have the Old Testament and all they were given in this letter was three things. The law entirely isn't burden on the Gentiles. And here's what I think. The disciples or the elders believed that the new covenant had come. And what was the new covenant? God prophesied through Jeremiah this way, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall no longer... They no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And if the new covenant had come, then the law is written on the hearts of those who believe in God. Do we believe this? (laughs) The church believed this. This is why the church isn't drafting a letter saying, we decided not to burden you except for reading the entire Old Testament and deciphering for yourself what law you should keep and what law you shouldn't. (laughs) Uh, That would be a big burden. I would wager that the church in Jerusalem expects and in fact is hedging their bets. The Holy Spirit is going to work in their hearts. We have seen that he has fallen on them and we expect him to be leading them. Does that make sense? Verse 30. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so folks from Jerusalem are staying at the church. Again, this is a show of support, investment, and involvement, saying, you at Antioch, you're one of us. And then they're using their gifts, preaching at the church. And more than just Barnabas from the Jerusalem church, now there are some more here. So Antioch Church is saying they like us. (laughs) And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, some old manuscripts have a verse 34. And some translations of the Bible reflect that. But it's not reflected in the Bible. I'm using ESV, but as a footnote, we see, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And that's not in the ESV's text because there are some older manuscripts that the ESV is derived from that didn't have these words. Now here's the thinking behind this. Some think that scribes originally put the verse in their manuscript because we realize what happens later on. Silas joins Paul to go on a missionary trip and so a scribe says, well, I need to explain how Silas is still in Antioch when Paul decides to go on a missionary trip. But verse 33 says... uh, All of the brothers in Jerusalem are sent off in peace. I don't know. I'm willing to think it could be that Silas also went back to Jerusalem and then he came back up or Paul could have went and got him. We don't know. Verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. 
All these verses to me are a picture of proliferation. The church in Antioch is happy. The church in Jerusalem with their letter and their leaders are kind of putting the rubber stamp on them. We are glad you are here. We don't think you're rebels. You are winning people for Christ. You're winning the people that Jesus commanded the disciples to win before he ascended. So they strengthen the church in Antioch. They support them. They encourage them. It's thriving. But this letter needs to be taken back up to the churches that Paul and Barnabas had been to. So we read after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, I said a few weeks ago that likely by this time, Paul had already written his letter to the Galatians. Galatia is the region where they had just been to Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. That's all the places that Paul and Barnabas went to on their first missionary journey, Galatia. In that letter, Galatians, if you read it, it has everything to do with what the council just discussed. (laughs) The Galatians were being deceived. They were being lied to by false teachers, telling them that God's grace wasn't enough. Jesus wasn't enough. They needed to keep the law. They needed to be circumcised. In other words, they needed to be more Jewish in order to be Christian. So... Perhaps Paul and Barnabas are saying this letter, this official document from the church in Jerusalem is what they need to hear. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So now we enter this second conflict. The first conflict was handled at Jerusalem Council. Uh, Testimonies of eyewitnesses, scriptures, debating and reasoning, then their solution in the letter and the demands they make upon the Gentiles. But what about this? John Mark had come before with Paul and Barnabas. He returned early before the work was done. We don't know why. He, He made it, it seems, to the Pamphylia coast. Everything's been suggested by commentators. Maybe, uh, John Mark was wimped out. Maybe these mountains that Paul and Barnabas literally crossed uh, really scared John Mark. I'm not hiking that. (laughs) Some say that in Pamphylia, Paul got malaria, a well-known disease to be had on the coast. Maybe it scared John Mark to where he retreated. Maybe John Mark himself got sick, and instead of toughing it out, he went home to rehabilitate. Whatever the case, we see here, that Paul's reasoning for not wanting to take John Mark directly correlates with him having left the mission early last time. We find out in the book of Colossians that Barnabas and John Mark are cousins, or maybe uncle and nephew. Uh, The Greek word is unclear on that relationship. If you have the study guides on Acts, I think James Wolbright did a good study on this part, that though this is just an episode that's six verses long, really put yourselves in the shoes here. See, consider Paul and Barnabas have been together probably almost inseparably for upwards of two to five years. Since Barnabas went to get Paul out of Tarsus and bring him to Antioch, they've experienced the first missionary journey together to Cyprus and Galatia. But now because of this, there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That's Barnabas' homeland. Maybe that's Mark's also. But then verse 40 Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, Antioch is saying, sounds great, take Silas with you, go back to that missions front. 
and he's going north of Antioch, going through his own homeland where Tarsus is, strengthening the churches. That's the route that Paul and Silas took that time. And they go through and strengthen the churches. Possibly churches that Paul had already planted even before Barnabas came to get them. What strikes me as I studied for this are two conflicts. And at first glance, I wanted to say that the first one was a win. The gospel of grace wins. The church understands that God's grace through Christ is what saves. What a win. And I wanted to say that the second conflict is more of a failure. Two friends are divided. The biblical account suggests that all parties are restored eventually. Paul says near the end of his life as he writes Timothy, of his desire for Timothy to bring John Mark to him because he's very useful to me in my ministry. That's what Paul says. But we, what we see in here, are these two, con, two conflicts in this chapter, is really reality. It is so much us, right? Some days we celebrate success. We celebrate feeling like we've done the will of God. We've heard the reports. We've read the scriptures. We felt the leading from the Holy Spirit. Seems obvious. We took the plunge. Everyone's happy. Antioch, Jerusalem, Gentile Christians. And if the the Christians who still want everybody to keep the law aren't happy, well, go seek the Lord more. (laughs) But then other days, it has to end badly, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to assume that some sin was involved here. Maybe it was a sin for John Mark to tap out on the first missionary journey. Maybe it was a sin for Paul to hold it against him and not take him back. And it's bad. Did Paul not even give it a second thought? Whatever, I don't have time to seek the Lord about this. I just know John Mark shouldn't go. So why don't you take him and do as you please, Barnabas. But I'm going to go up to the churches where he didn't want to go first of all. But even in this second conflict, where no doubt not everything was done the way it should have been done. Here's what I like. The Lord is still faithful to redeem it. See, instead of Paul and Barnabas, it's now Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mike. Mike, Mike, Mark. Mark changed his name again. He went from John to Mark to Mike. No. Two missionary groups, at least on this record that Luke has for us, with the likes of Barnabas and Paul leading them both. I don't know about you, but I love that because here's how I tend to think. I have my Jerusalem council moment experience scriptures, reasoning, the Lord's holy leading. I'm on cloud nine. I'm holy. God's faithful to use me. With the pl- God's faithful to use the plans we made and those plans come to fruition and there's flourishing. God be praised. We did it all right. But here's the beautiful thing. Things aren't positive. Feelings get hurt. Sin likely occurs. Friendships get broken. People are broken. It didn't go the way we planned. And what still happens? God still remains faithful. God's faithful to use the brokenness we caused. And our failures still lead to fruition even when we did it all wrong. I don't know about you, but this is my story most weeks, especially concerning my sermons. Even while we are sinning, God is still faithful. I invite you to say this with me right here. God is faithful to make fruition from my failures. Let's go. God is faithful to make fruition from my failures. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we believe that you 
our presence in our midst. We believe that you are the head of your church. We believe that you live and rule and reign in the hearts of the faithful, of those who are loving, serving, and following you. But sometimes we also see sin still occurs. We also see divisions still occur. Sometimes we think that they are righteous and correct divisions, but other times it seems to us, as we examine the record, all it really shows is pride or something got in the way. And I love how that you take out the reasoning so clearly for the division, but what you still leave in the record for us is how you redeemed it. That even whenever two brothers in Christ just couldn't get around their difference, you were faithful to make fruit from that. In fact, you redeemed it and made it for better that instead of one missionary group, now there are two and they are doing both your work. May that be a reminder to us that no matter where we're at, what sins we're in, what problems we've caused, what destruction that we've left in our wake, that you are faithful to redeem us. You are faithful to make fruit from that. That nothing in all of life, not even our pains, our trials, not even our sorrows, not even our sins, none of it is useless and meaningless, but you use and take it all and use it for your glory and for the good of others. And Father, would all of us take that home with us today? Would we use it in our lives? Would, we, would that empower us to seek your forgiveness? And would that empower us to be faithful to the ministry you call us to do? And even whenever we have failed to know that you're going to use that as well. And we thank you for that. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.